a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Mm, hello, and welcome to the 113th episode of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose. Thanks for being here. We're going to learn about regenerative grazing. So you may or may not have heard that term, uh, agroecological, maybe you've heard of that term, I don't know. These are things you kind of hear tossed around. I had just kind of heard about this stuff and learned about it a little bit and was kind of interested in what it actually meant, uh, but didn't really know it. So uh, I have Pete Huff on the episode today. He was kind enough to come on and he's going to he's gonna educate us and, and share what the hell regenerative grazing is because uh, it's... It's a simple concept, but it's kind of complicated also. So he does a really good job of, of breaking it down and letting people like myself understand this uh, because it's fascinating and it's going to, it'll affect us and it'll, it'll help us too. Um, so I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. Uh, just quickly, regenerative grazing is kind of allowing your, your cows or your livestock to eat you know the wild grass and then the wild grass has a chance to grow back so you, the soil is healthy and so that you're not just destroying the farmland that you're on you're actually like you know regenerating it a little bit or at least you know keeping it looking good you know so uh, pete's gonna do a better job at explaining it than i am so uh let's get to the episode 113 uh with pete huff from the pasture project okay we're on how you doing pete I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for coming on. Good to meet you. Um, this is, you know, something that uh, I've heard about. I feel like kind of multiple times, like this idea has just kind of come up, but, uh, you know, don't really understand it as being a, a normal, you know, person or, or, you know, even less smarter than a normal person, I guess. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you and, and you know, you can help me understand this a bit more. Yeah, yeah, I will do my best. Uh, and uh, I think it's pretty normal to not be able to know everything. So that's why we get to have <laughs> conversations like this. Uh, I think we all have our our intelligence and our smarts in other areas. And sometimes coming into a conversation that you don't know much about gives you the opportunity to ask really good questions that uh, push the way that I think about things. So I'll share what I know. And I'm sure your questions will help me think about it differently, which I really appreciate. Wow. Nice. Okay. Very cool. So, uh, I mean, let's just, let's start off because, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to, you know, educate me here. So let's start off kind of basic. I'm assuming people listening to are not, we're not in the agriculture industry. You know, we're just kind of curious about this. You know, of course we eat meat and, you know, we benefit from what goes on there and everything like that. But, uh, I mean, not, of course we eat meat. Some people, some people don't, but uh, I do. Um, so what is, I mean, how should we start? What is, I guess, should we just start with what is regenerative grazing? Yeah, we could certainly just we could take it from there, uh, give you what how I see it, um, and um, share a little bit about some of the work that we do and how we approach uh, regenerative grazing through the Wallace Center and specifically through the Pasture Project, which is run by the Wallace Center, uh, uh -huh. which is an NGO. I'm happy to do the, the bit on who we are and, and all of that. But it's interesting, just the, the place that you started was, you know, for those that may not have a lot of experience in agriculture um, or may or may not, you know, have meat as part of their diet, um, you know, just 
my introduction and, and a little bit of a personal side of things. So before I was a, a co-director at the Wallace Center and working on the pasture project, um, you know, way back in the day, I didn't grow up on a farm. Uh, I wasn't raised in a, in a uh, farming family, although it was in our roots and our, in our history. It wasn't something that, you know, was part of my day to day. I grew up in a small town in Indiana um, and actually, you know, started to learn about food um, you know, in that kind of like high school phase of figuring out who you are and mm. understanding how the things that you do impact um, the world um, and, you know, started to make different decisions and started to kind of really expand what felt right for me into my lifestyle. And then that eventually kind of evolved into a career that really was focused on, you know, environmental impacts of, of human activities and, mm-hmm. you know, went to college for that and, you know, in that time, you know, kind of like late high school through college, I actually was vegetarian and there was a vegan uh, period in my life. Um, and and really, as I kind of evolved my understanding uh, for what felt right for me um, and spent time in different places and actually worked on farms, um, managing them uh, and, and working on them in different places, um, I started to kind of appreciate a different um, approach to understanding food and its relationship to the environment and, and human beings and our culture and our needs. And so it really moved into this idea of kind of an agro, what I would call, and a lot of people call, um, an agroecological mindset, which is kind of seeing the ecosystem that contains food production. And we're part of that because without food, we don't, we don't exist. Um, and that really in any instance, almost every instance, there's not an ecosystem that doesn't have animals moving through it. They're really kind of key components to any ecosystem. They they move nutrients around, they are part of the food chain, and they really are historically and natural, a lot of times in natural settings, uh, really positive forces uh, ecologically. And so regenerative grazing is really kind of getting at that. Um, it's not a new idea. That's probably the most important thing is that this is something that we're talking about now um, in kind of mainstream society. But the principles and practices of regenerative grazing are uh, thousands of years old. Um, they've mm-hmm. existed within indigenous communities and exist within indigenous communities um, to this day. Um, and I think where I am based right now, um, kind of on the edge of the Great Plains in the United States, you now that's a grassland ecosystem that was really carefully managed by the indigenous peoples that you know call that that land their homeland and still live to varying degrees in those places. Um, and so really regenerative grazing is, is kind of a renaming or a kind of a return to remembering um, some of these practices that are very old and really need to be recognized as, as indigenous um, innovation, wisdom uh, that we really should be listening to and, and, and paying attention to uh, what those, those leaders have to tell us about how this fits into the natural world and um, promoting a more agroecological approach. Um, but if I had to, you know, kind of define, you know, regenerative grazing, it's a tricky thing. Regenerative is a tricky word. It's it's a buzzword right now. Um, but it's kind of a big tent or a big um, a big definition that you could fit a lot into. But basically, it's the idea of kind of, you know, building um, soil health through the integration of livestock um, into the landscape. So healthy soil is the goal. Um, and there's a lot of reasons we could talk about why that matters. I think, you know, increasingly we understand just how important soil is and its health is for a lot of different things, especially during the era of climate change. But this idea of reintegrating livestock into the agricultural landscape is really at the heart of regenerative grazing to build that soil health because we've really taken livestock off the land. 
if you look at mm-hmm. most places. We don't really mix the things that are producing food for us. We keep, you know, beef cows over here. We keep corn over here. We keep vegetables over here. Really, the diversification and the integration of the diversity is something that's really been kind of lost in the last, you know, 100 years of agriculture. Um, but really, it is historically what has been is agriculture has always been very diverse. The idea has yeah. been to increase diversity. Livestock have been part of that. And really growing soil health is, is, is in there. And regenerative grazing is also about regenerating some of the other things that go along with the farm. And this goes back to that kind of agroecological framework is that it is about environmental outcomes. It's also about economic outcomes is that what's profitable, what can like sustain a family or sustain an individual family uh, on a farm is going to stay. And we want that to stay and produce good environmental outcomes. Uh, And also it has a social regenerative um, component, meaning, you know, livestock back on the land uh, also just creates more opportunities in rural communities. And, you know, you may or may not be aware, you know, things are challenging in rural America right now. We're seeing a lot of uh, loss of farming in the farming community, a lot of losses in just the rural infrastructure, whether it's hospitals or other kind of key services. And a lot of that just has to do with how we are investing and building economic opportunity in rural communities. And so that's really how we see regenerative grazing is bringing animals back to the landscape, managing that presence on the landscape so that it builds soil health which then helps to create a a number of different cascading benefits, meaning, you know, uh, environmental, you know, ecosystem services, farm profitability, and also just rural renaissance, which is something that I think uh, we really want to lift up. Um, So it's about grazing, but it's really not about grazing. It's more of a means to an end. Yeah. Man, well, that was great. Nice, you nice said you wanted long answers, so yes, that, <laughs> no, that was such a good, like, a good overview. That was great. Um, so I just kind of want to, like, just dive into all that more. So yeah, you kind of mentioned how, um, y- you know, like these ind- indigenous people have been doing this for you know thousands of years. So is this? It sounds kind of like this is kind of maybe naturally the way things are, and it's you know beneficial just because that's the way you know the earth evolved, I guess, or whatever, but, um, we may have like kind of, and that's what we were doing, but we may have lost our way some, for some reason. And now we're trying to come back to this, you know, better solution or, or, you know, uh, is there, is that accurate? Did we kind of lose our way and we need to kind of go back to this and why, you know, what's, why do we need to look at this? What's the issue right now with, with grazing and livestock and agriculture? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, to say that we lost our way, um, you know, I think is accurate to a certain degree. I think there was a there's always a belief that we can control um, the natural world, and I think that we're regularly reminded that we mm-hmm. don't actually have a lot of control over the natural world. Um, human beings are very clever, uh, very hardworking, um, but there's some things that we just like fundamentally don't really understand. And I think soil falls into that category of something that we thought of in a very simplified way. But as we have learned over uh, years, over the last years, and increasingly so, is just how complex the soil ecosystem is. And there have been a lot of folks that have been telling us this for a long time. I think the idea of kind of the complexity of this uh, this living medium, which is soil, 
um, has been something that is rooted in a lot of kind of indigenous perspectives is that this is actually a, this is a source of life. This is such a uh, important part of what brings life into the, into um, human communities. And so I think we've learned just that this thing that we thought was something to control is actually something that we know very little about and that, um, and just how much of an impact it can make to uh, rebuild an appreciation and rebuild um, the vitality, the resiliency of, of soil. And so, you know, the idea there is that if we can have healthy soil, really we can um, build a lot of different sources of wealth off of that intergenerational wealth. And when we lose soil, um, really how quickly that can undermine our success um, as an individual, as a community, it really impacts everything from the, how nutritious our food is, you know, through to our ability to absorb, um, you know, heavy rains and flooding right now it's raining a lot in wisconsin and healthy soils are a sponge that can help absorb that and prevent the kind of flooding that some communities around the country are dealing with right now uh so it can also help real, us deal with drought in that in that same instance okay yeah you know and real quick pete what is can you kind of elaborate more on what because i've hear you know we need healthy soil and everything but i don't even really know what that means well, you know, I have learned from a lot of really smart people. Um, and one of the people that I've worked with is Dr. Alan Williams, um, who's kind of a, you know, a, um, <laughs> a, 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 a an expert, a leader, a speaker on, on grazing systems. And his point has been, you know, it's hard for us to know what healthy soil is because a lot of us have lived in an era where most soils that we interact with are, are somewhat degraded. Um, but the idea that soil really is an ecosystem in and of itself um, it likes to um, be, you know, undisturbed. Uh, it, it has different layers at which life exists and creates symbiosis, mutualistic relationships between the microbes in the soil, the plant communities that are kind of at that surface of the soil, and all the animals that interact with it. So a healthy soil really is, a, is, is most evident in places where it's left undisturbed, uh, meaning it's, it's not being tilled up. Uh, it's being protected, meaning it has a continuous living cover on the top of it. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of nutrient inputs, synthetic nutrient inputs that actually has a significant um, impact, in, in some instances, a negative impact on, uh, on the soil, the life of the soil. Uh, and it has livestock, it has animals that are interacting with and kind of moving nutrients around. And I mentioned kind of being on the edge of the Great Plains. I mean, the grasslands of the United States and grasslands generally uh, around the world are, are some of the most phenomenal soils. We really are. Our agriculture uh, in the United States, where we are in this kind of corn belt um, or on the edge of the corn belt, is largely due to the deep reservoir of nutrients that were built over thousands of years by plants and healthy soil and human beings kind of managing that with fire, managing that with uh, wildlife uh, the great herds of animals that moved around the plains. And so those are examples of where you have really, truly healthy soil. And we're trying to get back to that in agriculture. We've made a lot mm -hmm. of mistakes by, um, you know, plowing things up and plowing up soil releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. It also uh, allows that to that soil to blow away or wash away, which we've seen in a lot of instances. Um, we also have kind of tried to balance that by putting a lot of synthetic nutrients back into the soil. So regenerative agriculture, which contains regenerative grazing, is really about how do we get back to producing food while leaving the soil as undisturbed as possible and really focusing on perennialized systems that keep that, that continuous living cover. 
Um, and then we can see healthy soil doing what it does best, which is really building, you know, organic material in it, carbon, uh, holding water, capturing and holding water, and actually producing a lot of biomass. And, and that can feed animals, it can feed human beings, um, and it can just provide habitat, generally, the things that we need to support a lot of the, the species that are in decline right now. And the one that's probably most notable is, is, is bird species. So there's a lot of benefits there. Um, but it does take us kind of unlearning that control mindset that we had that we were talking about earlier um, that really wants us to go into plow up, to spray weeds, to kind of control the system. Um, and that comes from an appreciation that this is much bigger than us. It's really more about changing. Um, Dr. Williams, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, he often, when I was learning about this for the first time, would remind me that the biggest change is, is, is really in your mindset. It is about if we're going to interact with growing food, and that includes livestock, how do we first start with observation and really listening to the land and looking at where it is and, and how it needs to be supported and stewarded um, so that it can really reach a healthy balance. And that sometimes means we have to stop trying to control it. Um, we have to work with nature rather than against it. Right. Wow, that's so cool. And so, I mean, and it sounds like with what you guys are doing and everything, we so it, kind of the natural way things work with, you know, everything kind of together and stuff, like you said, is good for the soil. And that's like, like you said, is kind of the ultimate goal is healthy soil. Um, so is there, um, is there a way to where we as humans, we want to control stuff, like you said, uh, can, and now we have all these people to feed and everything, and we're used to certain foods and stuff. Is there a balance in between there where we can control a little bit and give, you know, grow food for ourselves and livestock and everything, but then still have healthy soil and, you know, not destroy it like we maybe have been? I think there is. And I think that's kind of like the, the edge of what um, everyone, a lot of folks in the, in the agricultural world are working on right now. I think there's a general awareness that, the, the, the assumptions that we had around the conditions of growing food in the world are changing. We have mm -hmm. less water um, that's available. We have more extreme weather events. Um, you know, climate change is impacting our fundamental ability to produce food. Um, and we want to change our practices in order to produce food to feed people and do that in a way that actually increases the ability or ensures the ability for uh, agriculture to be resilient and it can absorb those shocks from, from heavy rains or lack of rains or whatever mm -hmm. it may be, but also then regenerate from there. And I think that that's a big difference between sustainability and regenerate and, and regenerative. Uh, and we could kind of split hairs here and there's lots of people that will probably disagree with me or, or see a different perspective on this, but you know, it's going beyond sustaining something and it's really about re generating and rebuilding our capacity for future generations. So that multi-generational thinking, there is a way to produce food out of that system. Um, and that's where, you know, we have to look at, you know, how a lot of our land is used uh, and, and where we could make shifts in producing food uh, so that we can feed people, but we aren't necessarily relying on the same old practices that we've had before. Um, you know, a lot of the commodity crops that are grown in the United States do go to feed animals. Uh, in, you know, confinement operations, um, which require a lot of effort to kind of keep the animals in one place and, you know, move food in and move manure out. And there's a lot of kind of challenges there. And putting livestock back on the land actually helps solve that problem because the animals harvest their own feed, they manage their own manure, uh, and they are reconnecting or re 
uh, establishing the link between the animal and the soil, which is can be broken in some of these other systems. And so there is that there are ways that we can use new practices or returns to old practices to ultimately still produce food um, in a way that is um, positive environmentally for or positive for the environment. Um, there is like a larger conversation here around meat. As I mentioned, I, I grew up and had a big extent of my life not eating any meat and having very specific viewpoints on it. Um, and I think it's this idea that um, cheap meat is something that is never has never really been present in in the in nature in our history. I mean, meat has always been something very um, special and something that wasn't as abundant uh, uh, as it is now. And I think that we do have to have a conversation about um, how cheap uh, meat is and how how people expect it to be cheap uh, and how it can be part of the diet, but it actually has to be part of a a more holistic diet that is bringing in a lot of other whole foods. Uh, there isn't a great nutritive value to eating uh, meat, particularly grass-finished, grass-fed, pasture-based meat. Um, but it may not necessarily be at the quantity um, that uh, we expect it to, that people may expect it to be. And a lot of that cheap meat, meat is driven by, you know, producing a lot of corn and, and soybeans that gets fed to animals. Um, mm -hmm. And so shifting some of the way that we grow other crops will shift the way that we might perceive meat. Um, and we kind of take that approach of, you know, meat is an important part of uh, rebuilding ecosystems, agricultural ecosystems. Um, but we have to also just have the right expectations about where it sits on the dinner plate, meaning is it the main thing or is it part of a larger diversity of diets uh, and foods that we want to encourage people to use? And I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. But it's this idea that generally diversity in the soil is uh, a good idea, as is diversity in um, eating a lot of different foods. Uh, you know, human beings generally benefit from uh, having diversity of their, in their diet. And so we see that as part of this is really how do we grow good, nutritious food that rebuilds the relationship to the soil across the board? And that includes meat. It includes, you know, plant-based, uh, a lot of other things. But um we certainly see that part of the solution is making sure that people do eat the right kind of meat. And how do we make that accessible to folks? So it's not just um, for those that can afford it. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. But I could see how that, um, cause that's something that I have, I mean, struggled. I mean, personally, you know, I, I love animals and it's, it's hard for me to, you know, eat. Sometimes it's hard for me to see like an actual animal like meat, before it's been, you know, put in the grocery store. So, but that's my own, you know, that's people's own personal stuff. So I'll, I'll put that aside. And, you know, I, I haven't really given myself the, the time or, or research, I guess, to really ad like address what I need to do. So it's interesting for you to hear or to hear from you that um, maybe the solution is we just have our expectations of, of how much meat we should be having or get to have. And the, the price of it is just, way too the price is too low and the quantity is too high um so we kind of, we may need to kind of retrain ourselves as humans as what to really expect i think that that's yeah i would agree with that i think that um i think that it is about recognizing that you know really meat can be part of a person's diet it is part of a healthy farm and mm -hmm. a healthy ecosystem um it's just about getting that balance right and i think that that's what we're dealing with as just a as a civilization uh, is just what's the balance here in terms of what we can access versus what we should access in terms of the longevity and like what is the what are the impacts of some of the things that we 
um, that we do that could, you know, ultimately have serious impacts, whether it's, you know, environmental or otherwise. So I think it is something that is important to be mindful of. Um, and when people are making choices about diet, we always try to encourage folks to go as directly to the farmer as they can. We realize that that's not um, always accessible to folks. Uh, so we want to encourage that and make sure that uh, people have increased access to good food, regardless of what that food may be. Um, because that is really a key part of this is that not only is eating a diversity of foods and eating good uh, well-produced food that's really building soil health, not only is that important, but it's also important to make sure that those dollars that you're spending on your on your meal are going as, as much as possible, uh, as much of that dollar is going back to the farm as possible and really supporting the diversity of farming on the landscape that's needed. Because we want to make sure that, again, going back to this idea that you know, farms are profitable, they're able to sustain themselves generation to generation and build that rural, you know, renaissance, that rejuvenation of the countryside. Um, we want to make sure that we have diversity in that process and that people really trying to get those dollars as close to the farm as possible is, is critical in that um, because we are seeing it just kind of a general loss in the farming community. Uh, and we want to make sure that there's good people on the landscape. Um, so that's kind of a key part of it. And people can determine their diets um, from there. And, uh, mm -hmm. but it's really about that relationship. That's key. So do you like on a practical level, I'm just thinking like for myself, cause I, I've kind of, I've heard that before, which is, it's good. I think a lot of people agree on that. Um, do you have any, uh, maybe advice or tips or resources of where I could perhaps, you know, me being in like Los Angeles, a city, you know, I don't really, there's not really farms around here that I know of. How could I find a good place for me to, to buy meat from? Yeah, there's more and more opportunities um, where, you know, you can find good meat um, in places where there are farmers markets. It's a great opportunity to, you know, it's a nice time. Uh, and usually there's uh, local producers, whether it's meat or otherwise, that are there. Um, and so that's a great opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who really knows what it takes to produce meat, what it means for their farm and for their communities. And so having that conversation is a good starting point. Um, there are, you know, other opportunities, you know, there's restaurants that, you know, are, are engaged in this. I know that it's a tough time for dining in general, um, but there are, you know, uh, restaurants that are great leaders and champions for building, um, awareness and access to food. There's also, you know, some great resources that are coming out. Probably the one that I would note most, uh, readily is called the good meat breakdown, which I think is just good meat breakdown. Dot org and um, that's a great website it's really schnazzy looks great um, and actually produces a lot of um, uh, has a lot of great resources for how to find good meat how yeah. to purchase it in a way that you can feel confident a lot of people just don't feel confident buying um, meat in some instances uh, and also how to cook it recognizing that um, that is something that we want it to taste good and therefore people will buy it again. And so it is a great resource to kind of build knowledge and find, um, find the producers in your community that you might be able to source from. So that would be one thing that I would, I would point to. Um, and kind of in that is this idea that, you know, kind of buying good meat is also about kind of expanding, you know, the kind of products, the kind of meat that people want or are willing to eat, because really it's kind of this whole idea of like, let's make use of the, the animal uh, as much as we, as we possibly can. If we are going to grow an animal really, really well in the landscape, and we are going to harvest that animal um, for our consumption, 
Um, what we want to do is really take advantage of all of the nutrition, all of the different, um, uh, you know, food that comes from that, from that process. And so, you know, that good meat breakdown and there's other great resources that are out there is really encouraging folks to, um, you know, potentially explore eating different cuts of meat that they may not necessarily be as comfortable with, um, but is really critical for using the animal fully and really taking advantage of that. Um, all that has been invested there and all that, um, the, the cost, the embodied cost there. Um, it's also a way that it increases the profitability of the farm um, because they, a lot of times, are stuck with certain um, portions of the animal that not everybody wants and they have to find a way to sell that product or, or get it used um, because everybody tends to kind of want the same things um, because they feel comfortable cooking it. Uh, it's what they expect. It's what they know. And by buying a more diverse um, selection from a farmer, um, it actually increases the profitability of that farm while also creating opportunities for trying new things, which is, yeah. is always a good idea. Yeah, that sounds fun to me. I'd love to try some other more uh, unique cuts of, of, I guess, and real quick too, is this, are we talking about mainly um, like beef here or is this for, you know, pigs and chicken and everything too? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the Good Meat Project is for, you know, a lot of, uh, is for, for all different types of proteins. Um, and so that's certainly, you know, you can kind of source it through there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, cows, cattle, beef cattle, that's usually where there's kind of more, uh, the most common um, that you might come across. Poultry, of course, is quite common. Um, uh, pork, uh, hogs are, are in there as well. We also, you know, really try to encourage folks to, you know, see a lot of different protein options that are out there. We as the Pasture Project have historically focused mostly on beef cattle production. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. The, kind of the biggest one is that um, it's the easiest kind of market to figure out. And as the as a project, as the Pasture Project, we really focus on making that market connection and, and looking at the value chain um, to be able to say, you know, we want to see more cattle on the landscape, more animals on the landscape. Part of that is making sure that there's the capacity in the value chain to process that animal and get it ready for the customer while retaining value for everyone involved. Um, and we also want to make sure that that market is there so that people are ready to buy this. The last mm -hmm. thing we want is for farmers to, you know, move in the direction of transitioning to livestock grazing and, and producing meat. Um, only to find that they aren't able to really make that profitable because the market isn't there or the value chain or supply chain isn't there to absorb it. So we we tend to focus on cattle um, and beef in particular because it's a fairly easy market to understand. Um, and it's one that we could see, um, you know, ultimately when this pasture, pro when the pasture project started over a decade ago, um, you know, we just noticed that most of that demand was being met by imported products, meaning, um, you know, meat that was coming in from outside the United States was really meeting the demand that folks had for grass-fed, grass-finished beef. So it was kind of an obvious spot to go to say, let's try to switch that to getting those dollars to go towards as local of a processor or of a producer as possible. Um, but it doesn't mean that other animals and other proteins aren't beneficial. And in fact, we want to see a polyculture. We want to see a lot of different species of animals on the landscape um, because there's a lot of benefits that they each bring. We're kind of just taking our little slice of this um, for some of the reasons that I've mentioned. The other thing I just mentioned is that, um, you know, other species are also more culturally appropriate for different communities. Um, and we were just having a conversation yesterday about um, goat meat and how in certain communities, increasingly so, you know, the demand for goat meat is higher because it's culturally preferred. It's what folks are more comfortable with. 
Um, and so how do we kind of make sure that that's part of the equation, um, similar with poultry or, or other species? Um, because there is an equity component to this. We want to make sure that whatever we're doing to improve the agricultural system of the United States, states, which is, you know, fundamentally founded on taking land from people and also taking labor from people uh, against their will um, in many instances, um, we have to make sure that we're not recreating any kind of oppressive systems as we go forward. And so as we think about new agriculture and we think about the food that comes from it, we have to make sure that we're really centering equity, particularly racial equity. Um, and so thinking about different types of foods that might be more culturally appropriate um, creates more opportunities for communities to be healthy and to thrive. It also creates more opportunities for those uh, for those communities to, you know, see the next generation of farmers to produce those products, produce that food for their community. Uh, and we want to see, again, it goes back to diversity, diversity in the soil, diversity on the plate. It's also just diversity of the people producing our food uh, and making sure that there's equity there from the farmer to the food chain worker to the community that's receiving the benefit of that food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, it's so cool. It's so exciting to me. It's it's just like, you know, we've been doing we've been doing this stuff for a long time now, and it's it to me it just seems like well we're we're learning, we're getting we kind of seeing what doesn't work and what does work, and we're learning and getting better. And you guys are helping to kind of share what what is working and everything. So can we kind of dive into a little bit more specifics on what's kind of you know maybe to like what a a lay person can understand, but what's what is being done? What is regenerative grazing like on the the actual practical level? Like what's happening? You mentioned like mixing kind of livestock and and I think growing food and, and plants together and stuff. Is that kind of a big component of it? Yeah. So it looks different in different places. Um, hmm. You know, just because um, you know we're not a monolith. We all all the different regions of this country as well as of the world are just different ecosystems, different biospheres or bioregions. Um, and so livestock kind of come into it a little bit differently. Um, the pasture project, the work that we do through the Wallace Center, you know, has spent the last 10 years plus really focused on the, the upper Midwest of the United States, which is, you know, where I live in Wisconsin. It also includes Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana. So that's really kind of where we focus, like, what does livestock look like on the land in a regenerative grazing context? If you go out to, you know, the West, it's very different. Um, if you go to the Southeast, it's different. Some of the, a lot of the principles are, are very similar, um, but, you know, some of the applications can be a little bit differently or be a little bit different. Um, so when we're talking about regenerative grazing, um, you know, really there's a lot of different ways that it can manifest on the landscape. There is the ultimate goal that we have is for these animals, uh, you know, in this case for the Pasture Project, predominantly beef animals, to really be raised on perennial pasture. And that, again, is really the closest we can get to the grasslands that I mentioned are, that were so productive and so powerful. And really keeping grass, and by, by grass, I really mean a diversity of plant species of legumes and, and other broadleaf plants that really come together to create an ecosystem of forage um, that feed the animal. We want to keep that on the landscape in a really healthy way um, because it's doing a lot of wonderful things. It's essentially, you know, not only feeding animals as they rotate through um, the, the pastures that are set up for them, it's also supporting the habitat of a lot of other species. I mentioned ground nesting birds, insects. Um, that's just a, it's a home for a lot of things beyond just being food for these herds of cattle. It also is catching a lot of rain and helping that rain infiltrate down into the soil 
Um, it's also keeping the soil cool, which really makes a big difference. And then below ground, it's supporting that nice, healthy ecosystem in the soil that kind of acts as that living sponge that's helping to absorb the water. It's also exchanging nutrients, which helps that forage, feed the cattle and the other animals in a way that's good. So we want to see that perennial pasture in as many places as possible. So we really try to promote that as the gold standard, as what we're trying to get to. Um, and there's a lot of places in which it's probably the best use of the land because it might be growing other crops, corn and soy, that isn't necessarily um, as good or as profitable. And so that would be an instance where perennial pasture that's regeneratively grazed is a really positive transition. There's other places where regenerative grazing doesn't make, so, make sense. We certainly don't advocate for cutting down forested land and other natural ecosystems to, to raise cattle. Um, so that's like an important context is that we really want to keep those natural systems, those established ecosystems as they are, meaning we don't want to convert grasslands to this. We don't want to convert forests to this. Uh, mm -hmm. We really sure. want to protect those natural ecosystems. Um, and some instances in the Midwest where we are, you know, it's really difficult to make the economic argument to put, to transition your corn field to uh, livestock production because those fields are are profitable under the current system, the current economy that we're in. And so in that instance, we really encourage livestock grazing on cover crops. Um, there's a big boost and people are increasingly aware of using cover crops. There's a lot of positive benefits, uh, both environmentally and economically, to keeping, again, keeping the soil covered after, you know, corn and soybeans or wheat has come off uh, and before the next uh, the next planting happens the following year. So we're seeing more and more cover crops growing on the land, and that's a great thing. We want to support that as much as we can. Um, and also that those are great uh, fields to be grazed by cattle. And some of the research that we've done, some of the research that we've done with partners like Practical Farmers of Iowa uh, and others have shown that it's it's really there's really no reason to not graze your cover crops. It's economically more beneficial. It's environmentally, ecologically more beneficial. And so in those instances where something is going to keep growing corn and soy, regenerative grazing is also okay, at least from our definition, to get those cattle onto that 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 field with the cover crops as much as we possibly can. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, it's creating the soil health benefits tied to the economic benefits that we think is really uh, what we want to see uh, in the world. So it kind of looks like that in different places. Um, the pasture project kind of deals with, you know, we, we look different in different places. Sometimes we're working on grazing cover crops, sometimes we're working on perennial pasture. It depends on the geography of where things are at. We also spend a lot of time just engaging people around the idea of regenerative grazing and getting livestock back on the land. Um, and how do we really put this as a tool in the toolbox so that people can pick it up and use it when it makes sense uh, for them in more and more places. So there's just a general outreach and education around general around regenerative grazing that we're doing right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And that also means working with a lot of different stakeholders. So we engage in the private sector with some of these folks that have supply chains and they're trying to improve their supply chains. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking to public land managers uh, and working with them to return livestock back onto public lands. Um, and that's something that we've had a lot of success with in different parts of the region. Um, so we work with a lot of different stakeholders to um, essentially just normalize this practice of regenerative grazing, that it can be environmentally, economically, and socially beneficial um, and kind of reset the mindset around that because in a lot of instances, um, people just don't, they don't, they don't, we've kind of separated a lot of agriculture out in our mind. And it's nice mm -hmm. to be able to 
get people back into a thinking of integration, diversification, uh, and really regeneration through that process. Yeah. I mean, it makes me, I think it's a little different, but it makes me think of a, a coffee farm that I toured here up in uh, Santa Barbara and they were doing, um, they would kind of grow everything together. Whereas like they would have a, a coffee plant growing and then they would have like a banana tree on top of it because the shade from the banana tree would help it and everything. So they were working on kind of mixing everything together because there was different benefits by, by doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like really basic principles that are, again, I mentioned kind of that indigenous, um, you know, indigenous wisdom, indigenous leadership. Um, There's a lot of really, core principles that are in regenerative grazing that are in regenerative agriculture that are directly have a direct lineage to that thinking. Um, and, you know, recent, you know, generation year after year, we add new technology. There's things that, you know, didn't exist a thousand years ago that exist now that actually make the process a little bit easier, like, you know, uh, movable, you know, temporary fence. That's a really key innovation that we can thank the New Zealanders, the Kiwis for, uh, that's really changed the game for, uh, for, for regenerative grazing. Um, as have other things that are, you know, high tech and whatnot, but the core of it is like what you're talking about is really basic principles about, you know, diversity and how do we really create, uh, mutualistic relationships where we don't really see something as separate. We see things as part of an interconnected set of relationships and what might be waste from one thing becomes food for another thing. And that's where we see this, uh, cycle that, the livestock are critical in maintaining when you remove the animal from the system. In a lot of instances, the system really struggles to be as efficient as it could be um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, cattle take, you know, what might not feed anything else in this case, forage and turn it into food for humans, but also produce fertilizer that then goes to feed the soil nutrients or the soil microbiology. Um, And so that's again, this idea that like, we don't want to break the loop in these relationships. They need to stack. Um, and we need to be able to uh, really see that these things are all feeding each other and we can't really remove something without having a larger impact on the ecosystem. Yeah. So, so is the idea, just to help me understand a bit clearer, um, is the idea that you have, you have cattle and they, they graze in a field and there's grass for them, like you said, and then, um, you know, essentially they're just, they're, they're free to eat that grass however they want. And then it, you you move them off and then that, like you said, it being a perennial, it just grows back and then they're able to eat it again. Yeah. So this, the, the grazing that we promote is regenerative. There's a lot of different terms. Um, and there's a lot of grazing that we don't promote, um, generally, um, like continuous grazing where you kind of just like open the gate and let the animals wander around, um, and kind of choose to eat what they like whenever they like, they want to. Um, that has a lot of, that can have a lot of really detrimental impacts the grazing that we support as as under regenerative grazing is is commonly referred to as um, adaptive multi paddock grazing. Um, that's probably the most common one. Where it's this idea that you're taking a if you had a square field that's a pasture um, that has fence around it keeps the animals in. That's really important, and that fence pretty much stays there all the time. Um, within that, the adaptive multi paddock or regenerative grazing actually creates smaller blocks or paddocks within it. Um, and that uses, you know, temporary fencing, typically electrified, you know, poly wire is what it's called, where it essentially, you know, creates a little electric electrical perimeter um, that the animals don't want to touch. 
Uh, and it has them eat in a certain area for a set period of time. And that's, you can do math around this. There's a, there's a whole science and art to it. Um, but then the idea is that once they are kind of in an area for long enough uh, and have kind of had an impact, positive impact, meaning eaten forage down, you know, 50% and they've dropped all of their manure, um, then you actually move them to the next paddock. And you move them kind of paddock to paddock inside this larger pasture um, so that you are um, kind of cycling through through the whole thing, but you're not doing that in a prescriptive way. Part of the reason that we are where we are as a species, human beings in agriculture, is that we think prescriptively. Like I, if I have an equation that produces food, I just keep repeating that equation over and over again. And that's not really how nature works. Nature doesn't like prescription. It likes, it's adaptive, it changes, it responds to itself and to other things. And so same thing with moving the cattle through this larger pasture is you change where the paddocks are and you change how long the animals are in there so that you're giving a lot of rest time for the plant species to absorb all that nutrients from the cattle manure and to rebuild from their roots up and from their soil up to regrow so that when the animals come back around, um, that, that particular piece of the, of the pasture is ready to be consumed again. So it's about adaptivity, meaning you're changing the way that you're doing things. You're never doing the same thing over and over again with the animals and their movement. Um, you're changing how many are in a particular area for how long uh, and how much rest that area may get uh, afterwards. And that is really kind of the key to rebuilding that healthy soil uh, animal relationship. So regenerative grazing is very much about moving the animals in a way that is observing and adapting to where things are at in that particular piece of land and that particular pasture um, so that you really are creating a net benefit to the soil uh, and you're creating a net benefit to the resulting plants. And I think good grazers know that um, being in tune with that and moving their animals, because sometimes it might mean you're moving them once or twice a day. Um, wow. That means that you're actually going to produce healthier animals because they're eating the best possible of uh, one of the farmers that we work with in Illinois, uh, a man named Trevor would always say that the goal of his, his grazing operation is to give the animals the best possible meal every single day. And that's, so he has kind of learned that abusing the land and keeping it prescriptive and beating down the forage and beating down the soil, it ends up having an impact on the animals, meaning they're not as healthy and they're more expensive to take care of. And they also just aren't as good as an end source of meat, um, meaning they're not living a good life and they're not producing the optimal food for human beings. So we really, really focus on regenerative being in that adaptive mindset and mm -hmm. being in relationship to the land. As soon as we just kind of apply an equation and repeat it over and over again, we're really just recreating some of the, the thinking that got us into this, the challenges that we're in now with agriculture. So why not, what is the issue with just letting them kind of graze in that whole, the, the bigger area? Because to me, it would, it would seem like they would just kind of randomly go eat, you know, like you, like you want, where it's not an equation, but why, why is that not the case? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So animals are, um, you know, cows, beef cows are similar to humans. We'll eat what we want to eat. <laughs> we tend to not eat the things that we don't want to eat. Um, and over time, if you do that in a pasture, if it's a cow, a cow in a pasture, um, they'll eat all the stuff that they really, really like uh, and leave all the stuff that they really, really don't. And that creates an imbalance in the ecosystem. Okay. Um, They're eating all the dessert and not their vegetables. 
That's right. And actually, that, there's multiple reasons that that's problematic. One is it allows, you know, an imbalance in the species. Um, it also is an imbalance in the nutrition going to these animals um, and that eating a diversity of things, much like eating a diversity of food for humans, it creates a more robust and healthy um, living creature. And so it, it cows are happy to eat a lot of things um, and keeping them in a particular area kind of teaches them to eat a diversity of things. It's eating your vegetables and your dessert. Um, and doing so keeps balance in the ecosystem. Uh, and it also creates, um, you know, just more balance in the ecosystem below the ground. So you have healthier plants above ground and you have healthier soil. It also creates opportunities for um, other species to be in that space. If cattle are kind of roaming around all over, um, it can be really difficult for ground nesting or, you know, grassland ground nesting birds to have their nests. And so a lot of grazers that are practicing regenerative grazing, one of the things that they'll note the most is just how amazing the bird life is uh, as a result of their management. And so having these periods of rest also allows for other species to be in, to raise their, lay their eggs, raise their chicks or whatever it may be, uh, and to uh, exist in that ecosystem of, of kind of a grassland or a pasture uh, that, that resembles a grassland. So there's a lot of benefits to kind of keeping the animals in one area so that they can really, you know, bring as maximum value to that, that area and keep the balance and then move them on. Um, and a lot of times that'll also just allow rest and we all need rest plants in a forage in a pasture need rest as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you see a lot of these continuously grazed fields that you may drive by, a lot of them are grazed down really close to the ground. Uh, and the plants are never really actually able to recover. And we need the plants to recover because in that process, again, they're creating habitat and more nutritious food for the cattle. They're also just sinking a lot of energy back down into their roots, which is increasing carbon and storing more in the soil, um, which is ultimately from a climate change perspective, that's something that we want to see as well. So we need that rest period for a lot of different reasons. And just letting the animals roam around um, isn't necessarily accomplishing the goals. Uh, it also makes it really difficult to manage some of the problems that might come from, you know, cattle getting into streams or wearing down a particular area where then, you know, erosion could occur. Um, regenerative grazing, moving cattle in this way, it forces the person who's stewarding that and managing those animals to pay attention to the land. And when they notice erosion to kind of move away from that um, and to try to fix problems on the landscape through the use of the of the animals because cows are incredible creatures. They have incredible capacity to really impact the landscape, but that has to be managed carefully. And that's really the human's role is to see what's happening and then use the cattle in a relationship to improve the overall environment. So how does, um, I mean, it just makes me think, you know, for a, you know, a wild cow before a human was kind of ever really involved would, I mean, did the cow, I mean, it must have benefited the the soil and everything around it. Why do we need the human now to kind of help the cow? That's a good question. So, you know, cows aren't from here um, and the same way and the way that they exist now, you know, the, okay. the you know, whether it's a dairy cow or it's, a, you know, um, beef cattle, um, you know, those are animals that we have, you know, selectively bred for and we groom for. So they're really not, you know, they're in kind of a, they're unnatural creatures in, in some sense, 
um, in that they didn't evolve with the ecosystem that we're putting them into. Um, okay. Where I am in Wisconsin, it's really hard for those cows to stay outside all winter. They're just not built for it. They put on heavier coats in the winter. Um, but it's something that it's just you can kind of tell that this is you are you're not from Wisconsin. <laughs> um, and so because of that, uh, we have a responsibility to manage their relationship with the ecosystem because we kind of brought them into this ecosystem in a very specific way. And we need to take some responsibility for managing um, their presence in the ecosystem. And also, we're also managing their presence in the ecosystem to address, you know, past mistakes in that a lot of times, you know, people are moving in and working with cattle on landscapes that have been pretty seriously degraded. And so it needs a level of intentionality to help that species uh, be on that landscape in a really beneficial way. Um, so that's kind of like the answer there is, is, is why, where our responsibility is. Um, if you look way back, you know, before, you know, white people were in North America, you know, there's the stories of bison, um, you know, and the great herds that moved through the Great Plains. Um, you know, those were managed to varying degrees through the indigenous people, the tribes that, uh, that were in those homelands um, and, and interacting and really evolving a culture with those uh, those herds. And so through the use of fire and through the use of hunting, um, those, you know, animals were actually kind of moved or kind of brought into the landscape in different ways. So, you know, human beings have been herding domesticated animals for, you know, thousands of years and have been in a way kind of herding or working in balance with wild animals in their movements on the landscape to really create um, optimal environments for both, meaning great environments for hunting, great environments for those animals to be grazed and therefore hunted. Um, so there's always been a human interface, you know, always. There's, for a very, very, very long time, there's been a human interface with animals. Um, and if we want to kind of get ourselves out of some of the challenges that we've gotten ourselves into from a soil health to a climate perspective, uh, it really requires that level of intentionality where we're thinking about our relationship. We're working with the different components in the ecosystem to really create the regenerative outcomes that we want to see um, in cattle, you know, in other livestock species that uh, to varying degrees can be really powerful forces for change. And I think indigenous folks knew that and know that. Um, and we are kind of learning that again on how we can produce beef, how we can produce dairy, how we can produce other proteins um, by being at the center of that relationship. Uh, again, humbly <laughs> and observationally, um, but still our presence is required. Yeah. Cool. No, I love that. And one thing I, I, a, a ways back, I'd interviewed a, um, an ocean farmer. And one of the cool things that he was doing was he was growing kelp and, and, uh, it was really cool because it wouldn't, it doesn't require any inputs. It would just kind of grow naturally from all that. So I'm wondering, you know, let's a farmer, he has his cows and he goes, they're grazing, but okay, it's time to move them off to another, another portion. Do, is there inputs that are required for that part where they just moved them off to, to grow that grass again? So typically no. Um, I mean, it, it, there's a, any good teacher that I've ever learned from around regenerative agriculture they almost always answer every question with it depends um, because sure. it depends on so many things. Yeah. Um, and, but the idea generally is that regenerative grazing is meant to be low overhead, meaning it shouldn't require the level of machinery, the level of kind of inputs that, you know, might go into other agricultural systems. And so if you, you know, we've got great videos on our, uh, on our uh, Wallace center YouTube and you can watch, you know, people actually doing this, 
you know, it is really a pretty simple process where typically it's a person on a four wheeler, sometimes on horses in our neck of the woods. It's more four wheeler than a horse. Um, but, you know, they're often going out into their paddock or their pasture, their large kind of fenced in area, which uh, can vary in size. And they're creating using kind of temporary fencing, electrified temporary fencing. They're creating an internal paddock. And in some instances, they're setting this up in just a couple of minutes and they're on their four wheeler. They put some posts in the ground. They run the line. They hook it up to the the energizer that, that powers it. And then they move the cattle. You know, the cattle can move into it. Um, and so it can be pretty low effort. Um, you know, they, it doesn't require heavy machinery because you're not needing that to harvest, you know, the food for the animals, move it into their barn, feed it to them, clean up, scoop out, scrape out all of their waste, move that out back onto the field and spread it, which is typical in some other systems for animals. Um, in this case, the animals are harvesting their own food. They're handling their own waste and they're moving themselves to their, to their next meal and, and the next place where they'll rest. Um, so the individual often can really be running this operation with very low investment. Um, there's some other things, you know, getting animals on and off of trucks requires a little bit of effort. And if you're going to move them on uh, to whatever uh, their next stop may be, including slaughter, um, you do need to have some infrastructure there. Um, so it's pretty low overhead. It's something that allows the cost of the operation to be quite low. And in terms of nutrients, um, you know, there's some instances where soil is severely, severely degraded, um, in which some people do use kind of a one-off or a short-term kind of infusion to help get that up. Um, mm -hmm. But actually, it's not necessary. The cattle themselves, that manure that comes out of a cow is, you know, I've, I've heard someone say it's the best medicine for that land. Um, and that having cattle on the land and kind of moving them through, sometimes people do bring in supplemental food to kind of help the cattle get enough off of land that's been highly degraded. Um, over time, through good management, that soil will take care of itself, meaning it's capturing all the energy it needs through photosynthesis. Um, it is absorbing, hopefully, and storing that precipitation uh, in a really efficient way. And it's building the soil biology, which is actually what's doing all the work. It's feeding the plants, which is then feeding the animals. And over time, these systems um, don't require people to be putting fertilizer on or dealing with insecticides or herbicides. Those are actually the opposite of what's needed. Those fertilizers hurt the soil microbes, so we don't want them. Um, the herbicides, why? When the, that's the food that the plants that, or the cows need, they want to eat those things that we consider weeds are actually really good nutritious food um, for the cattle. Um, and insecticides, there's no reason. We need a diversity of insects on this landscape um, again, the cattle are part of it, but it's a bigger ecosystem that the cattle are supporting and the insects are critical. Um, and we really see that as a measure of success is how many insects are in a pasture that actually tells us that it's a healthier environment, you know, below the ground as well as above the ground. So to answer your question, a really long winded way, moving towards regenerative grazing should require less machinery, less inputs. And, you know, and theoretically less stress. A lot of the farmers that we work with, one of the biggest things they notice is quality of life. They feel like they're more connected to the land, feel more connected to what they're growing, um, and actually just really enjoy the process. A lot of them um, just really claim how enjoyable it is to spend time with the animals moving them. So uh, it kind of changes the way that they think about being a farmer. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, things that you don't need to do this and to do this well. Yeah. I mean, I'm hearing this and, and you know, if I'm 
if I'm a farmer in the the right area, I'm thinking, hell yeah, this sounds awesome. Let's let's do this. So why why isn't everybody doing this? What's what's the catch, Pete? Well, there's a couple catches there. Um, you know, depending on where you are, um, there's other ways that people have been farming, and a lot of times uh, there's there's programs that keep the status quo going as the status quo. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we have a farm bill that we pass. Uh, and that farm bill has programs and inside those programs, uh, are funding sources that kind of keep things moving. Um, and so, you know, part of this is changing policy is around how do we really incentivize diversification, not just, uh, in the scale of farm, meaning we need a lot of different types of farms of different scales, but also in the practices that are stacked onto the farm. Um, so how do we kind of incentivize diversification in policy or agriculture through policy? Um, we also have just established supply chains in that um, one of the things that we work on at the Wallace Center more broadly, including with livestock, is, is how do you connect what's happening coming off of a farm to the people that want to buy it? Um, and, you know, it can be a little bit difficult for folks to be able to move their grass-fed beef to, you know, a local consumer. And so part of that is improving you know, the ability of that farmer to market their product or the processors that, you know, if there aren't any available, how do we make that available? And then how do we get consumers to actually prefer that? You know, meaning I want to buy a particular product because of certain attributes, whether it's coming from local or it's, you know, the animals treated in a certain way or raised in a certain way. So there's kind of those supply chain barriers, um, policy and supply chain. Um, and then there's just like time with farmers. It just, it takes a lot of time to, understand uh, what a farm needs to move in the direction. Um, You and I probably, I'm making some assumptions about you, but for me, um, my home and my work and my family legacy are all kind of separate. For a farm, it's all in one place. The Mm -hmm. farm is their home, the farm is their business, and a lot of instances, the farm is what they've inherited from their family. And so what that means is they're not gonna risk it for any old reason. Um, and the way that maybe I would change a job or that you might move home. Um, it's something very, very different to a farm. And, and a lot of farms have, have been, you know, have struggled over the years. I mean, we, it was, was not that long ago in the 1980s that there was a farm crisis uh, in the Midwest in particular. And farm foreclosures were significant. We're going through a dairy crisis right now where we are losing dairy farms at an unprecedented rate. Um, and so... Farmers are also just, they tend to be a little more risk averse and they really need to see how it pencils out and they really need it to address some of the concerns that they have. And so we do, we focus on that along with our partnerships uh, and relationships with different allied organizations, the Wallace Center, the Pasture Project, we always work in an ecosystem of, of, of other people trying to create positive change in agriculture. And so we try to invest in those relationships uh, so that farmers can have the conversations see what their options are and really make a plan to get there Um, because it's not something you can just, you know, switch on overnight. Um, People have debts to pay. Um, They also have costs that they would incur. Um, Most farms in the United States rely on off farm income to be, to really exist. And so uh, we have to take it very seriously that farms are making multidimensional decisions that are very real economically. And they have to be able to see how, what they know how to do, uh, is something that connects to what people want to buy and that they can actually do that profitably. So there's like, there's kind of just like a, a support piece of this, you know, whether it's, you know, we said policy, supply chain, and there's just like plain old fashioned 
working with farmers to answer their questions, to access the resources that they need, and to really connect them into a community of practice that helps them continue to be engaged. Um, the Wallace Center is really big on this, is that you know if we think about how to change from point A to point B, you know, first is you got to get somebody's attention. Uh, second is you got to get them into the experience so they can actually see the thing that you're talking about. You know, you've got their attention, now they have to see it. Um, you have to pair that person up with the kind of technical assistant that helps them, you know, make plans, get to a point where they know what they need to do to get to where they want to go. Uh, and then to really stay with them to kind of help answer their questions and then to ultimately bring them into a community of practice with their peers. Um, it, you may, may know this, a farmer really doesn't care what you have to say or what I have to say because we don't farm and yeah. they care about what each other have to say. And they're the most influential on each other. And that that's why in farming, particularly in regenerative agriculture, the people that are the biggest like draws, the people want to talk to and listen to are people that are experts, but they also are growing food. You know, whether it's like mentioned Alan Williams, you know, the Gabe Brown, some of these other folks that are really kind of like key figures in these conversations, they're speaking from direct hard experience. They know what it's like to have to pay the bills on a farm and to make decisions for their families. Um, and so I think that that's something that we really focus on is how do we move people towards a peer-to-peer -peer or peer-based community of practice where they can actually talk with each other and normalize. So when we see something like a grazing network emerge in an area or a farmer-led watershed council emerge in an area, we know that something is going right in the social ecosystem of change there because that's really what's going to sustain this and help other farmers uh, take advantage of the benefits that we've, we've laid out because it's there. Uh, we just have to be able to navigate through some of the policy supply chain uh, and technical assistance challenges that are there. The thing I would say is that when we get it right, it is a really powerful thing. And the farms, we actually, we, we do some research as the pasture project. One of the challenges that we faced is in our research, we create, you know, the way that we set it up is we have one field in which we ask them to do nothing differently. And then we, and we call that the control field. The other fields are the treatment fields where they do something different. And then we measure the difference between the two. It's pretty, mm -hmm. pretty basic rudimentary. One of the challenges that we faced is when we get it right, we really have a hard time uh, having the farmers agree to keep the control plot in a control plot. They want to, they see the benefit and they want to put it everywhere. And so yeah. we've never seen a situation where the farm has said, oh, you know, I tried it, but, you know, I'm not really interested. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. They see it so much so that they don't want to wait for the research to get done. They want to just go ahead and move it forward because they, uh -huh. to them, they've already proven the, the points already been proven to them. So we see that like proof in the pudding, uh, as my brother would say, is like these folks see it, they, they value it, they want to expand it on their farms. Um, so we know that um, what we're trying to do um, it works and we're seeing more and more of it in more places. Um, there's still more work to do on supply chains, policy and technical assistance, but those are kind of three things that groups like the pasture project and others, um, we really see as the reason we need to exist and the reason we need to continue doing this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Well, I think that really, you know, summarizes how difficult this is. It's, I do not envy the job that you guys have trying to figure this out or, or, you know, a farmer, but like you said, when you, when you do get it right, I'm sure it feels real, real good. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, the responsibility even for like, yeah, for the farmer to kind of balance their, you know, their economics of their farm and, you know, kind of what's 
what's best for the planet and, you know, all this kind of stuff that you guys are trying to help them with, man, it, it, it seems very tough. But, and then you, we kind of mentioned this too earlier. Um, are there, are there benefits to, um, regenerative gr- or regenerative grazing, um, in relation to like, you know, global warming type of stuff? Yeah. Um, so there absolutely is. It, it depends on how you kind of like which piece of this you look at. Probably the biggest benefit um, that we know of right now, um, you know, we're learning a whole lot as uh, climate change is happening around us um, and the science is rapidly evolving. So one of the things that we know a whole lot about is that um, regenerative grazing and, and what it means in terms of perennial pastures, in terms of like, you know, that gold standard that I mentioned, um, uh-huh. it's really good at grabbing water, receiving water as it comes down uh, in rain events and soaking it into that living sponge that is healthy soil. And that allows a couple things, you know, we're seeing more and more Tennessee is dealing with some really tragic flooding right now. And there's really tragic drought that's happening in the Western United States and wildfire that is a result of that, um, that healthy sponge, uh, of soil as it soaks up water, it does two things. It stops, it prevents the amount of the quantity of water, um, from, from entering the, the system at the same time. So flooding is reduced. Um, and it also holds that water. Um, a teacher that I had, uh, that I learned from, you know, way back in the day, um, you know, would say the best place to store water is in the ground. And that's true. It's soil has, especially organic material in soil, which is really where the life is. It has a tremendous ability. I say sponge has a tremendous ability to soak and hold water. Um, and that is slowly released over time. And you'll see kind of side-by-side photos of, you know, farms or pastures that are regeneratively managed and ones that aren't. And it is night and day on one side, it's brown and dying and parched. And on the other side, it's looking lush and it's looking green. It's regenerating and re-infusing, um, you know, water tables and aquifers. It's also just like helping keep that plant life growing um, and um, again, keeping the soil cool through the plant life. So we know that that is needed because extreme extreme rain events, extreme drought events are something that is, is probably going to be the new norm. And so more regenerative management, particularly through livestock, um, can really help with that. Um, it also holds the nutrients in the soil and the soil. So it stops a lot of those down downriver problems where you know, you're seeing nutrification and, and drinking water sources where they have to build bigger water treatment infrastructure to pull all those nitrates out of the, out of the water, uh, or they're dealing with higher sediment levels. Um, and that flows all the way down, you know, from a place like Wisconsin, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, where you see, you know, the dead zone and the hypoxic zone. So we want to keep soil and nutrients on the land. And part of that is keeping the water slow it down, sink it into the soil and let it kind of slowly diffuse out. And so we need that for the, you know, the mitigation of climate change that is to come. Um, There is a lot of questions around, um, you know, carbon and soil. You know, what we know is that, you know, tilling the soil releases carbon. Um, And so any situation where you are tilling soil is going to uh, release carbon and potentially set back any positive, any carbon you put back into the soil. So, you know, perennialized grasslands, perennialized pastures uh, do have a tremendous ability to store and sink carbon uh, in them as they have for thousands of years in the grasslands of of the world. Um, The key in there is you got to leave it alone and and actually hold it in the bank. If you're tilling it and moving it around, um, you are going to lose that carbon back to the atmosphere. So there are a lot of great studies that do show that 
um, those perennial pastures, those grasslands have tremendous ability to, when well managed, have tremendous ability to, to hold carbon. Again, pulling it from the atmosphere, putting it into the ground. Um, there's some challenges within all of that. Um, carbon accounting is a, is a whole separate conversation we could talk about. Um, but I think that the biggest thing for climate change, you know, beyond water and beyond, you know, carbon, um, is really about people on the land caring for it. Um, a lot of people are leaving the leaving rural communities. Um, I live in a town of pretty, it's a pretty small town here in Wisconsin. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a place where there aren't a lot of opportunities to really raise your family or raise a family or, or live a good life. Um, and it's hard for people to feel in relationship and care for the land in that way. And so if we are going to get through climate change, we need as many brains, good, innovative people who are working with nature to find the solutions that are needed to really uh, not just mitigate, but adapt to uh, what's coming in the future of, of climate and the future of humanity in terms of producing food. So I'm a big advocate for how do we really kind of build, I said, rural renaissance. How do we really build rural innovation? Because farmers, there's a really phenomenal person named um, Paku Hang who runs um, uh, the Hmong American or was involved with the Hmong American Farmer Association out of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I remember sitting in an audience, she's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant person that I feel very fortunate to have ever even just listened to. And she said once, you know, farmers are the original scientists. You know, they, since the very beginning, the first seeds in the ground, the first domesticated animals, they have been figuring out how to be on the land and how to really grow good food and care for the thing that allows them to grow good food. Uh, and that is the land and the natural resources. And so less farmers on the land means less ideas around how land can support climate change adaptation mitigation uh, or mitigation adaptation. So, um, you know, I think that that's kind of a, a key piece of this as well is that regenerative grazing beyond water and carbon, it creates opportunities for people to be on the land. And mm -hmm. what we're seeing is, the next generation that had left the farm actually coming back or staying on the farm and stacking their regenerative grazing enterprise on top of their parents, you know, conventional corn and soy operation. They're grazing on the edges or some of the marginal land, and they're finding a way to be on the land and have a livelihood. We're also seeing, you know, the next generation of people that didn't grow up on a farm see regenerative grazing, whether it's poultry or goats or hogs or, or you know, for beef or dairy, um, we're seeing folks want to get back to that quality of life. They want to be in relationship with the land. Um, and so we see that there is a real opportunity to bring that innovation back through regenerative grazing um, and, and get it back on the landscape as much as we possibly can, because um, that's really where we're going to see the kind of adaptation that's needed to uh, find solutions that work for a place like Western Wisconsin or a place that might work in California or other places because it's not a one-size-fits-all. And if we're going to get through what's coming, uh, we can't just expect the land and the animals to take care of it for us. It's our ability to work with them to really create innovative solutions that not only create healthy food and restored ecosystems, but also create equity and justice for folks to be able to have a good quality of life in a rural setting um, because it's a critical component to the overall ecosystem of humanity. Nice. Wow. Pete, that was great. That, that feels like a really good kind of natural conclusion uh, to all this. I really like that. Um, this is exciting. Is there, is there anything else that, you know, we may have missed that you want to touch on? Or do you feel like we got kind of a pretty good conversation? 
Well, we covered a lot of territory. I think the thing that I would be, you know, remiss if I if I didn't if I didn't uh, kind of get at it in, in specific is, you know, all of this work with regenerative grazing happens in the context of the Wallace Center, um, which you know is important to name because I think it gives a little bit of context to why the pasture project exists and how we think about it. And that, you know, the Wallace Center, you know, has been around for, you know, many decades um, and, and really was started with this idea of how can we really look for some of the best ideas at the time uh, in what was called at the time alternative agriculture and has for, you know, the last three plus decades has really helped to advance these ideas. And, um, and this fits into that, this idea that we really need to create a space for innovation, need to create a space for collaboration. Um, because we really believe in this emergent process where like the, the ideas are there. It's about, can we listen? Can we communicate? Can we inter- exchange with each other in a really open way that we can actually find the best, the best emergent strategy that comes out of it. And so the Wallace center, I just want to kind of put a little plug in for this larger thing that I'm a co-director of. I would really look bad if I didn't, um, <laughs> You know, the whole goal for us, at least in our kind of this this iteration of where we are now, is the idea is to kind of bring together diversity of people and ideas in this co-creation of solutions. And so there's like a couple things there. It's about people and their ideas. It's valuing all people. It's valuing all ideas and diversity within that. And that co-creation is really what's going to get us through this is that we've got to talk. We've got to try things out. We've got to really create space for all people, not just those that have power and privilege to make decisions about what's right for their community. And for us, the heart of that is really, we need to be able to do this so that we see healthy farms, that we see equitable economies, and that we see resilient food systems. And those are like those three things, the farm, the economy, and the the food system that binds economies and binds farms and businesses together is really part of that solution set for us. And so we're committed through that mission to really focus on like what we would call changing or, or strengthening the change ecosystem. And that's a very much like investing in people to lead and to share their ideas and to really speak to what their community, what they and their communities need. And that in and of itself, again, I mentioned kind of centering racial justice and equity. We have to be able to acknowledge that not everybody has a fair shake in the system and hasn't for a really long time. And a lot of times their community receives what their community is allotted. And we need to change that and really focus on how do we really support the sovereignty of the individual, of the community to really have the power that they, that they naturally have expressed in the way that food is grown and made available into the community. So we really focus on that kind of component of leadership on, on how do we create equity and justice and, and how do we really support the learning, collaboration, innovation between communities so that they can take action. Um, and that kind of, helps us do the second thing that we're committed to through our mission, which is we all have to be focused on reimagining and redesigning our farming and food systems because um, what we have isn't what we, it's just what we know. <laughs> and there's a lot that we can imagine. There's a lot that we could become in the way that we grow and, and eat food and that ability, that willingness, that audacity to imagine something differently, to tell a new story about food and farming and that ability to then design that with the best of indigenous wisdom an acknowledgement of the best of that leadership that's there, along with some of the really cool ideas that have just emerged into the world. We need those brought together to really build the supply chains and to build the regenerative land use that we need. So I just wanted to name those things because I think there's a lot of power in that mission. I think there's a lot of power in those two goals that we have. And 
the pasture project and livestock is one expression of that, where we really see that this is a piece of the solution that we can offer, but we really want to invite other people to bring their pieces to the table. And that might be, you know, uh, working on perennialized grains, you know, and growing Kernza, and it might be creating new innovative ways to move food into a community and to really build ownership models through cooperatives, through hubs and whatnot. Um, so we just welcome that. Um, folks want to learn more, they can go to wallacecenter.org. Uh, there's a lot of good information on there. Uh, we have two really great communities of practice that people can join. One is the Food Systems Leadership Network. If you, you Google that, you can find it. It's all about helping food systems leaders work together to build their capacity and create change. We also have the Regenerative Ag Idea Network, which is about ag professionals, educators coming together to really kick this, this idea of regenerative uh, agriculture to the next level and share it with as many people as possible. Um, you can also check out the pastureproject.org if you really want to focus on the cattle uh, grazing side of things. Uh, we've got great videos and good resources. Uh, and we have social media at the Wallace Center. You can find this on predominantly on, um, on Facebook and on YouTube. I'd highly recommend YouTube. There's a lot of really great videos, uh, especially, you know, cute cows uh, eating, uh, you know, forage, looking happy in a field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've checked out some of your YouTube videos. They're good. So I'll ha I'll have links to um to the websites and to social uh, for people listening in the description. Um, but yeah, this is great. I I find this stuff just like endlessly fascinating, Pete. So thanks for sharing all this. And then I guess real real quick too, we kind of mentioned it, but as a you know, uh, I'm not really you know I'm not a farmer. I'm not in this industry or anything. Um, how can I maybe as like a consumer or anything? Um, you know, we talked about buying meat at the appropriate place. Is that kind of the, the best stuff that I can do as a normal person is just, you know, buying food from better places or is there some other stuff that I can do? I mean, there's always something that we can, we can each do. And, um, you know, buying food is a great way, again, as close to the farm as you possibly can. These are people, they've got great stories. Some of the coolest people, some of the yeah. most innovative people, are growing food um, that I've met are growing food. And so, you know, feel free just to have those conversations and take an interest um, and buy the product, share it with your friends. I think the biggest thing is, you know, we really try to focus at the Wallace Center to be joyful is that like eating is a joyful act. Um, if you've just met someone, uh, you can always ask them about their favorite food. You can always ask them about their recipe and they'll tell you about, you know, some grandma's recipe that's better than anyone else's or this one thing that they ate that they really love. And so it's just a great opportunity for us to talk to each other. Um, even in this age where we're dealing with a lot of separations, um, you know, we just encourage folks to not just buy it and to cook it and enjoy it, but to share it and to be mm -hmm. joyful about it because it really crosses boundaries. Whether someone looks entirely different and you don't speak their language or they, you, don't, you know, they don't speak your language, you can share food. And that's a really powerful thing for folks to be able to come together around. Um, so that's one, a second thing that I would say. Um, the, the third thing is that we live in the age of powerful information. There's so much media out there. And so just encourage folks to just spend time learning, to watch videos, to read articles, um, to engage with some of the organizations um, that are trying to tell a different story about agriculture um, and to listen for the opportunities in which your voice actually is really, really critical. It's not just about a dollar and you showing up to the store. That is really powerful. You can change things with the way that you buy things and the choices that we make. Um, there's also opportunities to share your voice with the people to make decisions about how landscape or how agriculture shows up on the landscape. 
Um, and so, you know, just encourage folks to recognize that you're a citizen of wherever you may be. And to in the United States, that means that you can pick up a phone and you can call the people that are elected to represent you. And you can tell them, even if you're not an expert about, you know, this bill or this act or whatever it may be, just raising your voice and saying, you know, I, you know, I think that we, I want to see more agriculture that is regenerative, that builds healthy soil, or I want to make sure that the meat that I'm eating actually takes care of the people that are working in the facilities that are producing it, you know, and making sure that we're not exploiting people to have the food that we want. Those simple messages coming from everyday people are really, really powerful to those that are, that are representing us. Um, because a lot of times they're, they're hearing it from groups like us, they're hearing it from the private sector. Um, mm -hmm. They really need to hear from individuals and, and a simple phone call uh, to say, I'd like to see more of this, or I want you to support this particular thing. It's really powerful, as is calling up somebody who's doing a really great job as an elected representative, whether it's locally on a, you know, trying to get better food into the school system at the state level or at the federal level to call them up and say, you know, I really appreciate that you're leading this in the direction that we need to go. I really value this. Those folks take a lot of abuse. They fight really tough battles. And having someone call them up, not just to tell them what they're doing wrong, but to tell them what they're doing right, can be incredibly motivating. So I think that those four things um, can be everyday acts that every single person can take. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time, doesn't take a lot of money necessarily, um, but it can really make a world of, of change. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that, Pete, because yeah, I, I am, I've been learning about this stuff and am totally fascinated by it, but do want to, you know, help a bit, you know, do my part in it. And um, yeah. That was that was great. Thank you so much for sharing all that stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll have links to all that. And enjoy your weekend, Pete. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really great chatting with you. And if there's anything that I can do to further your learning and further your engagement, just you know, feel free to reach out. And let me know. I'd be happy to be a resource. Well, there you have it. Episode 113 has come to an end. Told you it was pretty good, right? Uh, that was a long episode. Thanks for being here and listening to the end. I uh, hope you enjoyed it like I did. I know it's a little, a bit of an in-depth subject, but I, I really do find it fascinating and uh, important too. So thanks for being here and listening to the end. Thank you to Pete Huff from the Wallace Center and the Pasture Project for coming on and, and sharing all that stuff. Uh, really do like learning about that. Uh, and I'm going to try to, I got to find some good, you know, meat here. I got to find a good source that's grown at a, a farm as close as I can be to the farm that's, you know, grass fed, doing all that good stuff. So I'm going to get on that. Um, let's see. That's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Travis DeRose. You can email me at Travis at the email address is Travis at curiosityness.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Trav DeRose. And that's about it. We're on other social stuff if you want to. Curiosityness. Um, that's all I got to say. Thanks for being here and I'll see you in the next episodes. So long.